A human barbarian, a dwarf, a halfling, and a dark elf hold the fate of ten towns in their hands when an evil wizard comes a-conquering. That's today on Just Another Fanboy. Hello and welcome to another episode of Just Another Fanboy, the podcast that will often change its mind with very little warning. I'm your host, my name is Steven, and yeah, I did it again. I said that I would have another Madman episode out this week, and yet, that's not what we're doing. Nope, I changed my mind. Why? Is that what you're asking from your lofty pedestal looking down at me, the pathetic little podcast host guy? Well, let me tell you. I finished listening to an audiobook recently, and since... Just another fanboy, that's that's the podcast you're listening to, if you're unaware. It's supposed to be, quote, a celebration of all the great loves in my life, such as family, comics, TV, movies, music, and books. And so, well, I thought it was about time I talked about a freaking book. I mean, I don't have to explain myself, folks, but I do because that's how much I respect you, loyal listener. So, Today, I'm going to talk about The Crystal Shard by R.A. Salvatore, but more than that, I'm actually testing out an idea here in regard to talking about novels, most especially the fantasy novels of my youth. So think of this episode kind of like a pilot. Will something more come out of it? I don't know. That's going to depend on how this turns out and how much folks like it or just downright loathe it. I mean, do you remember way back in September of 2019 when I released episode number 15 of this podcast in which I talked about the first book of the Dragonlance Chronicles, and then a month later, I released episode 37 in which I talked about book two. Do you remember that? Remember? Well, (laughs) here we are almost four years later, and I've yet to talk about book three, and there is reason for that which is just that I still haven't read book three. I mean, sure, I've read it like a bunch of times, but I haven't read it in the last 10 years. And really, that's something I probably want to do before I talk about it here on an official episode. So with all that, what does any of it have to do with the Crystal Shard? Well, to be honest, not much, not really. But After listening to The Crystal Shard recently and thinking about how much I might want to talk about it, I realized that if I could make a decent episode here talking about that book, then maybe I might want to revisit Dragonlance. Anyway, y'all know me. If there's one thing I love to do more than anything else, it's to over-explain every single podcasting decision that I make in sense The biggest obstacle for me when it comes to talking about novels, other than, of course, finding the time to read them or listen to them, the biggest obstacle is how best to talk about it. I mean, do I give a full synopsis or summary of the book first, like I do, you know, when I talk about an issue of a comic book? Sure, I could do that, but synopsizing isn't actually a real word, so I'm not sure why I used it. Uh... I guess I should say summarizing a novel can take up a lot of time in an episode unless I make that summary real basic. Now, I could always talk about just a few chapters at a time, you know, each episode covering 
three to five chapters, but nah, that freaking sounds exhausting. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read you the summary for this book from Wikipedia, but after every story beat or scene or whatever, I will pause and give my thoughts. Make sense? Okay, you'll, you'll see. Or hear, anyway. So, yeah, let's get to it. So today I want to talk about The Crystal Shard by R.A. Salvatore. This is a fantasy novel set in the Forgotten Realms universe that was published back in 1988, which, of course, begs the question, what the flip is the Forgotten Realms universe? Now, some of you may already know the answer, but for those who don't, according to Wikipedia, Forgotten Realms is a campaign setting for the Dungeons & Dragons fantasy role-playing game, commonly referred to by players and game designers alike as The Realms, It was created by game designer Ed Greenwood all the way back in 1967 as a setting for his childhood stories. Several years later, Greenwood brought the setting to publication for the D&D game as a series of magazine articles, and then the first Realms game products were released in 1987. Forgotten Realms is a fantasy world setting described as a world of strange lands dangerous creatures, and mighty deities where magic and supernatural phenomena are quite real. Phenomena. 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 The premise is that long ago, planet Earth and the world of the Forgotten Realms were closely connected. As time passed, the inhabitants of Earth had mostly forgotten about the existence of that other world, hence the name Forgotten Realms. A world of savagery, super science, and sorcery. Forgotten Realms is one of the most popular D&D settings, largely due to the success of novels by authors such as R.A. Salvatore and numerous role-playing games, including Pool of Radiance, Eye of the Beholder, Icewind Dale, and the Neverwinter Nights and Baldur's Gate series. Okay, so that's what Forgotten Realms is. And as for The Crystal Shard, it is book one of the Icewind Dale trilogy. Got that? I hope you're taking notes because I'm throwing a lot of information here. So what's the book about? That's maybe what you're asking yourself or asking me or shouting at your podcatcher, or maybe not. You may have read this book and that's why you're listening to this show. But Before we get into it, I'm going to give you the synopsis or the summary that's up there on the Wikipedia. And as we go through it, I will give you my thoughts and all that junk. Sound good? Are you ready? Hello, children. Hello. Here is this morning's story. Are you ready? Then we'll begin. Even in the remote, far northern region of Icewind Dale, the renegade dark elf ranger Drist Doerden is not fully accepted, except by the dwarves whom he had eventually befriended. He roams the tundra, hunting down yeti and giants that threaten the ten towns of Icewind Dale. When the Dale's native barbarians band together to slaughter the people of ten towns, whom they view as invaders, Drist with his drow stealth and ranger's knowledge of the terrain, discerns their plan 
and relays the information to his friends, the halfling Regis and the dwarf Bruner. Regis, on the Council of Ten Towns, uses persuasion and a magical, hypnotic ruby pendant to convince the stubborn leaders of the towns to work together to thwart the barbarian attack. Because of the warning and their united efforts, Ten Towns and the dwarves successfully repel the barbarian attackers. Drizzt personally meets the barbarian king, Heefstag, in combat. He wounds Heefstag many times, including a stab to the stomach that should have been fatal, but the king manages to survive and escape after wounding Drizzt. Meanwhile, Bruner clashes with a young barbarian standard bearer who breaks the shaft of his banner over the dwarf's head to no effect. Bruner then slams the youth with his shield, rendering him unconscious. After the battle, Bruner saves him from being killed in cold blood by the townspeople, instead taking the young man Wolfgar into his care. Bruner also defends the wounded and unconscious Drizzt, slamming Kemp to the ground and breaking the nose of his lieutenant when he finds them kicking the injured drow. Bruner tells the people of Ten Towns that if not for Drizzt do Erden, they would now be dead, which grants Drizzt a measure of acceptance and respect in Icewind Dale. Okay, so I'm going to pause here because there are a few things I feel like I need to bring up at this point. First off, this is the first appearance of the character Drist Doerden. It's, well, the first appearance of many characters in this book, but this first appearance of Drist is actually fairly important. If you're not aware, he is a dark elf or a drow who are typically a fairly evil race. They live deep underground and they worship demons and stuff and all that, and they kill and maim and torture and plot against each other, and they're just not good people. Now, with that said, I do want to go ahead and address uh, some pretty heavy topics, systemic racism, and this idea that in certain fantasy universes, that uh, particular races are just evil by nature. So yeah, buckle in, because we're going to talk about that for a bit here right now. So Being a white guy, I never really quite realized that this was an issue until it was pointed out to me. For me, uh, I do remember back in my early teens when I was reading the Belgariad and the Malorian, almost didn't get that name out, the the two uh, five-book series. Each series had five books. Anyway, they were written by David Eddings, and I remember being a bit put off by how each race in those books had various traits that were just part of being that race, something that was ingrained in them from birth simply because of their race. Uh, For example, in the universe of the Belgariad and the Malorian, all Drasnians were spies, all Cheriks were big, hairy Viking types that loved to fight, the Arends were all rather dumb and the Angorax were all evil, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I remember back then when I was 14, 15, 16 years old, I remember thinking that that was pretty dumb. Uh, you know, this idea that someone based on their race were just all the same. But here's the thing. I didn't think about it as racism. In fact, I didn't even think of it as these people were who they were based on their race, but instead my White brain associated it with where they were born. If you were born in Drasnia, you are a Drasnian, and therefore you are a sneaky spy and a thief. So 
deep down, I knew it was wrong. I knew that it, it made me a little uncomfortable. I just didn't know why. And it certainly didn't stop me from reading those books over and over and over again. I have, of course, since changed my opinion on David Eddings and his books. I tried to listen to them a little over a year ago, and that's when it all really came tumbling down. And I I looked into it and was introduced to this idea of stereotyping races and the uh, you know, problem with systemic racism in America. And I, you know, stopped reading or in this case, listening to his books. And I plan on never going back. Anyway, back to my teen years and growing up under the umbrella of white privilege, I didn't associate orcs or dark elves, for example, being evil. I didn't, I didn't associate that with racism. To me, it was really no different than I guess all stormtroopers from Star Wars were evil. You know, it didn't even enter my brain that under that armor, that stormtroopers could be anyone and that they were, in essence, part of a voluntary army. Yeah, we could debate that. That's not what I'm here for. But the stormtroopers were evil, but they were evil because each individual chose to be or They were just, you know, they thought of themselves as good guys. They were just following orders like the Nazis, blah, 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 blah. That's not what that's not what we're here to to talk about. Orcs and dark elves, along with uh, some of the other fantasy, quote, monster, unquote, races were born evil. And it never dawned on me that that was wrong. But now, I mean, good Lord, it's just so obvious how messed up that is. I mean, dark elves have dark skin a race of dark-skinned people who are all evil by nature, except, of course, for Drizzt, who many white people would probably describe as, quote, a credit to his race, which, uh, yeah, that's, that's pretty messed up. But as a kid, it made perfect sense to me. Again, I wasn't even thinking about racism. I don't, I don't know that, I mean, I understood racism as a concept, but again, white dude, Small town America, uh, really no other minorities to speak of around me. And I grew up knowing that the good guys wore white and the bad guys wore black. And so the evil monsters have dark skin because they are evil, which, <laughs> hello, <laughs> white is the color associated with good and black is the color associated with evil. I don't know who thought that up, but I guarantee you it wasn't a black guy. It was probably a white guy. But yeah, it was a thing. It's still a thing. And I never saw it or understood it until just recently. But just know that I'm aware of it now. And while it was at the forefront of my brain while I was listening to the Crystal Shard, I still listened to it. Right or wrong, I don't know. I'm still kind of learning all this stuff. So, yeah. By the way, I'm not trying to get like a pat on the back for becoming more understanding in my dotage. That's not what I'm trying to do here by addressing this. Nor am I looking for any kind of, I don't know, forgiveness or like a, hey, man, don't be so hard on yourself or don't let a book from the 80s make you feel so guilty or, or anything at all from one side or the other. I mean, if you listen to this and you feel the need to make your opinion known to me, regardless of what your opinion is, you got to be you. 
I'm not about to try and sit here and say, don't at me, (laughs) you know? I'm putting my opinion out there for everybody to hear. What kind of person would I be to try and dissuade anyone from throwing in their two cents? Like I said, you be you, but that's not necessarily what I'm trying to do here. I just felt like I wouldn't be me if I didn't address it. So, you know, just like you got to be you, I got to be me. It's a thing. Not everybody agrees it's a thing, but I know that it's a thing. Anyway, back to the book and Drizzt, who, as I was saying, he is basically the Wolverine of, uh, if not the just the D&D universes, but really all of the fantasy genre. And what I mean by that is, you know, there was a time when Wolverine was just a character in the X-Men. You know, he shows up, his first appearance in The Incredible Hulk, and then he becomes a, eventually a member of the X-Men. And then eventually he became very popular and Marvel realized that he was so popular that they had to start including him in a lot of books. If you put Wolverine in a book, there was a chance that that book would sell. And if my memory serves me, Drizzt was kind of the same. I mean, they weren't like TSR or whoever owned D&D back in the day. I think it's uh, Wizards of the Coast now. They weren't like sticking him in other Forgotten Realms books, but he does have, I mean, since this first book, The Crystal Shard from 1988, since then, as of August 2022, there are 38 books with Drizzt Doerden in them. It started with The Crystal Shard, book one of the Icewind Dale trilogy. So you get three books in which he is not a main character, but he's part of an ensemble. Uh, all written by R.A. Salvatore. And then he wrote three prequel books, Homeland, Exile, and Sojourn. And uh, nowadays, if you go in and you look up, for example, all the books uh, with Drizzt Doerden, most places are going to give you like the, the, the legend of Drizzt. That's what they kind of use as an umbrella for all of these books. And they say uh, books one, two, and three are Homeland, Exile, and Sojourn. And then books four, five, and six are the three books from the Icewind Dale trilogy. But Crystal Shard came first. Now, before we get back to the synopsis, because I I promise you we're going to get back to the synopsis, uh, a couple of important bits that were left out in that first part of the summary. Uh, First off, there was a prologue to this book that the summary doesn't mention at all, in which a demon by the name of Urtu is obsessed or is uh, super interested in attaining this crystal shard, which is called Krenshinabon. It's a powerful, magical item, which if the demon was to acquire it, it would allow him to rise several levels, whatever that means. Uh, But he was, this demon, Urtu, was a servant of seven liches. And yeah, I'm saying lich. I know that there's a heated debate out there on how to pronounce that word, L-I-C-H. And I'm not trying to start anything, but that's how I pronounce it. Uh, And in fact, I watched a whole video (laughs) yesterday on how to pronounce the word correctly. And in the end, yeah, lich. Don't at me. (laughs) Which I said earlier, I wasn't trying to say, but now I am on this one particular topic. That's I'm going to die on that hill. Anyway, Liches are the undead spirits of powerful wizards 
that refused to rest after they had died. Uh, And these seven liches had come together to, quote, create the most vile artifact ever made, an evil that fed and flourished off of that which the purveyors of good considered most precious, the light of the sun, end quote. Crenshinabon, the crystal shard, is basically alive. And as these seven liches were creating it, it stole the magic from them and consumed them to bring itself to light. And Urtu has been looking for it ever since. When, when it was created, like I said, he was a servant of these seven liches, but the, the creation of Crenshinabon uh, caused a, an explosion that brought it to life because it has some, some sentience. And it, uh, the, the explosion banished him to the abyss. But he, at some point, was able to climb his way or claw his way out of the abyss after hundreds of years or something. And, and he located Crenshinabon again. Uh, and he, I guess he sent a lackey to, to go get it. But before, well, no, he, all right. So before he was able to get Crenshinabon, a, an, an angelic being, that's what the book refers to this. I, I'm not even going to say the, the, the person's name because I can't pronounce it, but an angelic being of tremendous power banished the demon back to the abyss. I mean, he just keeps clawing his way out and he keeps getting sent right back in. And uh, then this angel or angelic being tried to destroy Cranshinabon, but it couldn't. And the crystal shard burned the angel. And so the angel threw it across the planes of existence with all of his strength. And from the book, uh, the prologue ends saying, far removed from the gloom of the abyss, Cranshinabon came to rest upon the world. Far in the northern mountains of Faron, the crystal shard, the ultimate perversion, settled into the snow of a bowl-shaped dell and waited. And then it's here that the, the prologue ends and we get into the first chapter where we meet a guy by the name of Akar Kessel. He is a wizard's apprentice. He is apprenticed to a wizard named Morkai the Red. There is basically a conclave of wizards who have crossed the spine of the world, which is a uh, like a, a, a large stretch of mountains, a, a big mountain range that separates basically Icewind Dale from the rest of the world in, in the south. And they have uh, crossed the spine of the world to come uh, to, to, to gather, I guess, various implements and, and herbs and, and junk like that for their, for their spells. So as we are meeting Akar Kessel and we're learning that not only is he a apprentice to this wizard, Morkai the Red, he is a rather inept apprentice. His uh, tongue stumbles over the words used for spells. He's, he's, he basically sucks. He's probably not going to become a wizard uh, anytime soon, but he murders his master. And we learn that he was tricked into doing this by other members of this wizard's conclave who promised that when he killed Morkai the Red, that he would become a member of the wizarding guild and he would be the red wizard and all that crap. And yeah, we learned that he was just being played as a stooge. And I guess at one point they, 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 they crack him across the head and they leave him in the snow out in the middle of the tundra. And it's... I, I find it weird that they left pretty much all of that out of the the the, the first part of the summary because both of those story points are 
pretty big story points. I mean, you've got the origin, ultimately, of the Crystal Shard, Krishinabon, um, which can form a crystal tower that looks just like it, but giant sized, called Krishal Tirith. Uh, well, we'll get to that later, but yeah, I just, I found it weird that, that, uh, the summary doesn't mention the origin of Krenshinabon and doesn't mention until later Akar Kessel, who, who ends up becoming the big bad of the book. So by the way, if I haven't said it already, spoilers for a book that came out in 1988. So back to the synopsis, the book jumps ahead five years with Wolfgar indentured to the dwarves. If, if you remember from I don't know what felt like three hours ago when I was reading through the first part of the summary. Wolfgar was the standard bearer of this barbarian horde that had attacked 10 towns and he had cracked the, the, the shaft of his flag or the standard banner thing, uh, cracked Bruner, the dwarf over the head with it. And as Bruner says, if there's anything you ever need to know about dwarves is never hit him in the head because you're, it's, it's not going to do anything to him. So rather than kill this young boy, this young barbarian, Bruner takes him uh, as a indentured servant for five years and a day. And Bruner teaches him to smith and mine, and he comes to love him like a son. Though Wolfgar initially resents the dwarves and his indenture, he grows to respect and even love Bruner like his own father who had died years past. During this time, the failed wizard Akar Kessel, left to die in the spine of the world, finds Krenshinabon, the, the crystal shard, a magical sentient crystal with the ability to lend power to its wielder, make tower sanctuaries in the likeness of itself, and insinuate itself into the minds of others, including that of its wielder. Rinchinabon, obsessed with gaining power, twists Akar Kessel's mind into doing its will. Kessel, oblivious to the manipulation, decides to conquer Icewind Dale for his own. He enslaves the goblins and orcs of the nearby mountains, building them into his own army, their wills completely destroyed by Krenshinabon. He even manages to gain control of Heathstag, which was the leader of the barbarian armies from five years ago that tried to sack Icewind Dale. And uh, through him, he is also able to gain control of the remaining tribes of barbarians. He also acquires the services of the demon Urtu to be his general, though the demon has more interest in obtaining Krenshinabon for himself than serving Akar Castle. But they, what, what happens here, and I'm, I'm no longer reading from the summary, but what happens here is that at some point, another wizard uh, who was basically an apprentice who had been learning how to summon demons was really, really pumped to uh, summon one by himself. And his master kept telling him, you're not ready. You, you don't have the control. You don't think through everything, the, the, the spells and the runes and all the stuff that you need to make to summon the demon and then keep the demon under your control. But of course, this apprentice uh, ignores everything his master tells him. He goes through the whole ceremony of summoning Urtu, who immediately notices that the, the various protection spells and whatnot that this apprentice wizard put in place were faulty and immediately kills this wizard and then heads out into the world to find Krenshinabon because it felt that the, the, the crystal shard was out there doing its thing. But when he approaches Akar Kessel, the, the wizard with 
basically a lot of prompting from Kryn Shinnabon, basically tells her to, look, you can't take the crystal from me. You know that because it, it wants me as its master, so it's not going to allow you to take it from me. But if you join me as kind of a partner in conquering Icewind Dale and maybe more beyond, then all you got to do is just kind of be patient because as a demon, you're immortal. And as a human, I'm going to die in what to you is a blink of the eye. And at that point, you can take the crystal shard and Urtu's like word and they high five and, and all that stuff. Back to the synopsis, near the end of Wolfgar's indenture, Bruner forges Aegis Fang, a magical warhammer for his adopted son. All right, I'm stepping away from the, the, the summary again because I, I just want to mention that Wolfgar, the way he's described and the way he's shown on, on the various covers and whatnot, he's a big, muscly barbarian with long, blonde hair. And he is now given a magical warhammer that he can throw at his opponents and it will return to his hand. Now, I don't know if that makes you think of somebody else, uh, but it sure makes me think of Thor. Just wanted to kind of put that out there. Anyway, Brunner then takes Wolfgar to be trained in the ways of battle, choosing Drizzt as the young man's instructor. Despite his ambivalence about training under a drow, Wolfgar quickly comes to respect and admire the Dark Elf, and Drizzt turns the young man into a formidable warrior. Yes, I am the warrior! The two of them clear out an entire layer of Verbeeg, which is uh, a member of the giant family, but is kind of like the, the, the lesser of the species. They're about 10 feet tall. They're not like fully huge, like real regular giants. Anyway, they're led by a frost giant named Big Grin. And the two of them basically go in and murder all these Verbeeg with the help of Drizzt's magical Black Panther companion, Gwenuvar. Gwenuvar. I can't remember how to pronounce that. It's like a little statue, a uh, little figurine that he keeps in his belch pout, and he uh, uses it to summon this mystical freaking Black Panther who is completely loyal to Drizzt. Anyway, Wolfgar then leaves to hunt down a white dragon, uh, whose name I'm not even going to try to pronounce. Ingolocacastamazillion, more comfortably known as Icing Death. Drizzt tracks him, and the two of them kill the dragon. Ingolocacastamazillion. Drizzt finds a scimitar in the treasure hoard and claims it for his own, eventually naming it after the dragon. Ingolocacastamazillion. So, a couple, couple things I need to point out here. Uh, a... Drizzt weapon of choice is the scimitar. He's got two of them and he's very adept at using them. Uh, so when he finds this, this scimitar amongst the treasure hoard of this dragon, he claims it as his prize to, to I guess, tosses away one of the, his scimitars and, and now he uses this as his second one. But the one thing that they fail to do at this point in the summary is explain why Wolfgar suddenly leaves to go kill this dragon. So before that happened, when Drizzt and Wolfgar took out this layer of Verbeeg, they learn that Akar Kessel is their leader and he is uh, massing an army to conquer 10 towns. And so they get with Regis and Bruner to warn the people of 10 towns who, of course, being humans, don't believe him and ignore him. and. Many of them die because of it. And so Wolfgar then learns that 
Keith Stagg and his barbarians, who Wolfgar used to be a part of, are part of this evil army. And he is very upset about that. And he wants to go find these barbarians, his people, and challenge Heath Stag to combat, which is a barbarian tradition. And if he wins, he then becomes the, the barbarian king, basically. The problem, however, is that Wolfgar is not of royal blood. And the only way you can challenge a leader for combat to, you know, to, to lead the tribes is to either be uh, someone of royal blood or their deeds have to be pretty awesome, basically. And so he knows about this dragon and he knows about the, the, the treasure hoard. And so he takes it upon himself to go and slay the dragon, claim the hoard for himself. And with that deed, he is then able to challenge Heefstag, and of course, he kills Heefstag, and he becomes the leader of the barbarian tribe. Now, he couldn't have done it without Drizzt, of course, and that's why Drizzt ends up getting a scimitar. He doesn't want anything else. He just wants that one scimitar. So back to the synopsis. As Akar Kessel moves on 10 towns, his armies sweeping aside the disorganized defense with little trouble, Wolfgar takes the horns of icing death and challenges Heefstag for kingship. He wins the challenge, killing the old king. Drizzt, sensing the demon Urtu and recognizing the demon from his days living in the deep underground drow city of Menzo Berenzon, calls the demon and faces it alone with Gwenyuvar. With the aid of the fire banishing properties of the scimitar that he got from the, the treasure hoard, he manages to defeat Urtu banishing it to the abyss for 100 years. So yeah, he had no idea that this freaking scimitar was magical and there's something about it that freezes things and, and takes the fire away from things and it uses Drizzt's life force to do this and it's, it's, a, it's a big moment in the book. Anyway, after defeating the demon, Drizzt uses his stealth and Gwenyavar's unnatural eyes to find his way into the crystal tower, Krishal Tirith where he fights his way past Akar Kessel's orcs and trolls to face the wizard himself. The wizard, sure of victory, imprisons the drow in a cage of magical light and taunts him with images of the barbarians joining the battle for Tin Towns, thinking that Heefstag still led them. This was very reminiscent of the Emperor in Return of the Jedi showing Luke from the Death Star how the uh, the rebel fleet had flew into a trap and he had to watch them as they use the uh, the Death Star to shoot a bunch of the big giant cruisers out of space, basically. Very reminiscent of that. So with the help of Regis, a halfling prisoner in the tower, which, yeah, I can't believe uh, we're near the end of the summary and they're just now mentioning Regis. Well, actually, they may have mentioned him earlier, but still. Um, Drizzt escapes his cage and follows Kessel through a portal to the top of Kelvin's Cairn, the Soul Mountain, in Icewind Dale. There, after a short battle, the magical heat of Krenshinabon destabilizes the snow cap, and an avalanche kills Kessel and takes Drizzt back down the mountain. Krenshinabon, buried under the avalanche and blocked from the light of the sun, which is its power source, and is weakened by the destruction of Krishal Tirith, 
It loses its control over the remaining orcs and goblins who are ultimately slaughtered. After the battle, Bruner, faking a mortal injury, tricks Drizzt into agreeing to search for Mithril Hall, Bruner's boyhood home. That's the end of the summary. But I made a bunch of notes because there's still a lot they left out. Um, I will say real quick, though, uh, I do remember really enjoying this book back in 1988 when I first read it. I was 15, 16, 17 years old, something like that. And for a book that basically launches uh, over 30 more, it's really not all that great. I'll be honest with you. Uh, I am going to continue because I do have the the next book, uh, Streams of Silver, and then the third book is The Halfling's Gem, if we're just talking about the Icewind Dale trilogy. But this first book, it just, it wasn't great. It was pretty basic, um, didn't have a lot of real character growth. It just, it, it kind of was a, uh, it just went through the, the, your, your basic um, story beats to, to get where they needed to get at the end. It was okay. I enjoyed it, but it wasn't as fun. It wasn't as awesome as I remember it being. Now, the bit at the end where Bruner fakes his injuries, because you learn uh, in the book, Bruner is basically the leader of the dwarves there in Icewind Dale. They are the, the Battlehammer clan. That's, that's Bruner Battlehammer. Uh, but he has always wanted to find his ancient home, Mithril Hall, where his father and his grandfather lived. They were, they were kicked out. Very, again, very, a lot of the stuff that happens in this book is very reminiscent of other things that didn't happen after the book, but, but came before. And this case makes me feel like Thorin and the dwarves in The Hobbit. The only difference is Thorin knows where his old home is. He just has to get it back from a dragon. Whereas in this, Bruner doesn't know where, where Mithril Hall is, but he's, he's always wanted to go find it. And he's always, he's, he, he talks to Drizzt a lot about going to find it. And Drizzt is always like, eh, we don't even know where to start and blah, blah, blah. And so he fakes his injuries after the battle. He's in a bed. Uh, he's, he's got Wolfgar there. There's a, a, a Another character that they, I don't, they didn't mention at all in the summary, Caddy Bree, who is a human uh, who basically Bruner raised. So she's like a daughter to him. And her inclusion in the book was, there was really no point to it. Uh, Very much, it's like, well, we got to put a woman in this book. So we'll put Caddy Bree. She seems to be somewhat of a love interest or a possible future love interest for Wolfgar, which is kind of weird, even though they're not related in any way. But the relationship between Bruner and Wolfgar is like father and son, and the relationship between Bruner and Cadbury is like father and daughter. So in essence, it's like Wolfgar and Cadbury are brother and sister, and yet they're kind of hinting at maybe a possible future love inter, you know, love thing between the two of them. Uh, otherwise, she's fairly useless in the whole book. It's, it's just pretty sad that, um, I just feel, I almost feel like she was put there because they needed a woman in this book. And this is just conjecture at this point, but I don't know. I just feel like the, the, maybe she wasn't included in the original story. And the, the people at TSR said, uh, you need a woman in this book. There are no women at all in this book. And the author was like, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll include a woman, but uh, she's not really going to do anything. She's just there because 
I have to have a woman in the book. And that's, that's the way it felt. I don't know if that's the case. Maybe, uh, he, you know, the, the author had her there from the beginning. He just doesn't do anything with her. And I, I found that kind of weird. Uh, but there at the end, when Bruner is faking his injuries, when he's pretending that he's dying so that, uh, you know, he can get Driz to say that, that, uh, one day that we, you know, we will go find Mithril Hall. And he's like, ha I'm not dead. Psych. Up to that point, you as the, or us as the reader, we're not in on the joke. We don't know that he's faking it. And for a bit there, it really felt like spoilers for the Dragonlance Chronicles. Uh, felt like Flint, who was the, the, the dwarf character in the Dragonlance Chronicles, who does die at one point. And there's even a bit of like loving animosity between Bruner and Regis the Halfling, which reminds me of Flint and Tasselhoff Burfoot from the Dragonlance Chronicles. So, I mean, really, there's just a lot in this story that doesn't feel uh, in any way original. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think most writers borrow bits and pieces and inspiration from other stories that they have heard or, or witnessed or, or read and whatnot to, to put in their own. But this was just a lot of similarities, small similarities, sure, uh, with, with other things in other genres and, and whatnot and all that. And then some, um, I should also talk about Regis, the halfling, his, his uh, magical ruby pendant. We learned that Regis at one time was a member of the Thieves Guild, and he stole this ruby from the guildmaster, uh, Pasha Pook, and uh, he has been on the run ever since. And he came to Icewind Dale because it's really, uh, you know, the back end of nowhere. And he has been able to create somewhat of a life for himself because all these uh, assassins and whatnot that uh, Pasha Pook has sent after him uh, have never found him there, uh, which feels a bit like uh, Han Solo and Chop uh, of the Hut. But at the end of the book, Regis ends up being kind of elevated to, a, to kind of a, a leader position of some point, and he becomes kind of an important person. Uh, for the 10 towns, which is literally 10 different towns. Um, but then he, he notices like somebody, there's, there's somebody there to see him and he sees the person before they see him. And he recognizes the person as, uh, Pasha Pook's most, uh, deadly assassin. And so then Regis joins Bruner and Drizzt and of course, Wolfgar at the end of the book, as they're setting off to go find Mithril Hall. Um, Ten Towns, I should also state its main industry uh, is fishing for knucklehead trout for its ivory-like bones, the, the, the way it's described in the book. These ten communities owed their very existence to the knucklehead trout with their oversized fist-shaped heads and bones the consistency of fine ivory. The three lakes were the only spots in the world where the valuable fish were known to swim. And though the region was barren and wild, overrun with humanoids and barbarians and sporting frequent storms that could flatten the sturdiest of buildings, the lure of quick wealth brought in people from the farthest reaches of the realms. So yeah, it's, a, it's, it's like the Wild West out there in Icewind Dale. Um, 
The other thing I, I guess that the the summary doesn't mention is that the 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 story, the novel is separated into, I think, three parts. And the opening of each of the three parts is a journal entry from Drist, who apparently keeps a journal. Um doing some research on the book, I found, well, really quite easily. It's just part of the Wikipedia page where I got this summary. But uh, some information on the development of the book uh, in 1987, R.A. Salvatore sent Mary Kirchhoff, the managing editor of TSR's book department, a manuscript for what would become his 1990 novel, Echoes of the Fourth Magic. While she liked it, she asked if he could rewrite it so that it could take place in the Forgotten Realms. Uh, she sent him the only novel that had been written and published set in the Forgotten Realms at that time, which was uh, Dark Walker on Moonshay by Douglas Niles, which I don't think I've read. And I know I haven't read Echoes of the Fourth Magic, but she sent it to him and then he sends her a proposal that is that would be a sequel to uh, Dark Walker on Moonshay. But she uh, she says, nah, here, here's a big map of the Forgotten Realms. I want you to create a new story and set it in a, a different place in the Forgotten Realms. And Salvatore discovered that the Forgotten Realms were like just just huge. And while the Dark Walkers of Mu or or the Dark Labadoo, the Dark Walker on Moonshay is set in the Moonshay Isles. Salvatore, after a few weeks of pouring over the map, he picked a spot in the north where he basically placed Icewind Dale, which would have been a thousand miles to the north of the Moonshay Isles. Um, he sent a, a, an early version of the Crystal Shard to TSR uh, that did not have Drizzt Doerden in it, uh, but a different character. And I guess this uh, managing editor. Kirchhoff, uh, she called him up and said that they couldn't use whatever character this was that he had he had put in there uh, before he'd he'd come up with Drizzt. And she told him that basically he had to replace this character with somebody new. And that's when he came up with Drizzt. He said he had an idea uh, for a dark elf. I guess Kirchhoff was skeptical, but Salvatore convinced her that it would be fine because he was just a sidekick. Uh, there's a little bit here that also says that she asked for the name of this character and he replied, Drizzt Doerden. She asked if he could spell it and he said, not a chance. So yeah, the rest is history. You know, it's, I find that kind of stuff a bit interesting where you learn that, um, the probably single most famous Dungeons and Dragons character in the history of D&D was an afterthought, was put in there because the original character, the author thought of couldn't be used. And then, yeah, I just, I find that kind of stuff interesting. Now, I also learned that IDW, who has the licensing rights to make comics based in the Dungeons and Dragons worlds, uh, they did adaptations of the Icewind Dale trilogy, as well as the three prequel books. So there are, are six graphic novels out there. All six of them are available to borrow if you're a member of Comixology Unlimited. So, of course, I borrowed all six of them. I actually read the Crystal Shard adaptation last night, 
and it wasn't great. <laughs> the art was in some areas just freaking awesome looking and in other areas uh, was not. And it was ultimately the size of maybe four, maybe, well, maybe three double-sized issues. And that's, that's a lot of book to cram into what would ultimately be six issues of comic. And, you know, a lot of times when I read these uh, comic book adaptations of especially fantasy novels, I'm typically not a big fan of it because a lot of times what folks do is they, they take uh, a lot of the text from the book and use that to to narrate what's going on in the comic, and, but they kind of scale everything back, so everything seems to happen really fast. And I just I would like to see somebody take one of these fantasy novels, uh, adapt them to a comic book, and then just do something kind of different with it. You know, the story's the same, all the all the beats, everything that happens is the same, but maybe it's from the perspective of one of the other characters. So it's not like ultimately just reading a more basic version of the book with some pictures. That's that's kind of what this made me feel like. But again, I'm going to read the rest of them because I borrowed them and uh uh I'm just I'm not going to read them until after I've listened to the various books. So next will be the uh Streams of Silver, which I don't know when I'm going to listen to that because I just found out yesterday that the Death Gate cycle from Margaret Wise and Tracy Hickman, which is a book of well uh, uh I think it's four books that that they put out after the Dragonlance Chronicles. It's it's not part of Dragonlance or Dungeons and Dragons or any of that. It's their own thing. Uh, it's a series of four books that I remember just absolutely loving back in the day. And just this past February, we we finally got um, audiobooks over on Audible. So I've started listening to the first one. Uh, so you may get an episode about that before we get to the next Icewind Dale book. But yeah, that was the Crystal Shard. Um, I guess if I had to rate it from one to 10, one being the worst, 10 being the best, I would give it maybe a six. And hopefully when I do continue with the series, it will get better. I mean, obviously this, uh, I don't know if this is the first book that R.A. Salvatore ever published. I feel like it might be. So of course, for a new writer, not bad for their first time out. And I have to assume that his writing and ideas and flow and story structure gets better because he writes 37 or so other books starring Drist, Doe Erden, and uh, people keep buying them. So I'm assuming the dude gets better. And, you know, it's funny because when I look at, you know, when I went into Audible after I listened to the book and I thought, hey, that wasn't as great as I remember. It was really actually kind of kind of dumb and yet fun at the same time, but it was not, it was not a deep book. And so I started looking through the reviews and that seems to be kind of the consensus. It's like you get one of two types of reviews. There's the people who like me read it when they were kids, uh, and still love it or people like me who read it when they were a kid and are like, yeah, that's not as good as I remember it being that kind of sucked. And I don't think it sucked. It just didn't, it didn't measure up to, uh, you know, what a 15, 16 year old remembers as a really good fantasy novel who, uh, since then has read some really good, deep, intricate, epic fantasy novels. So at the time it was, uh, probably top of the stack, you know, something I'd never 
you know, the kind of story I'd never read before, but product of its time, right? Again, whether that's right or wrong, I don't know. But yeah, Crystal Shard, six out of 10. What are we going to do next? I don't know. So yeah, that was, uh, think of that as, uh, as, like I said, a pilot. And you'll notice at, you know, I, I talked about what I was going to do and then I played a little music and then it's like, I kind of repeated a lot of what I said there at the beginning. And then at the end I played some more music and now we're doing this part here where I'm wrapping up the episode and I'm, I did that on purpose. You know, again, if this is an episode that folks seem to like, and they want to hear more episodes like this, then maybe they will in uh, some other kind of format. I don't know. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to say anything else other than that because I don't know what's going to happen in the future. All I know, all I know is that next week we're going to have Madman Part 19, which is the the Superman Madman Hullabaloo issue number one. That's what we're going to talk about next week. I promise. I mean, that is unless I change my mind. Until then, folks, my name is Steven. And I'm Just Another Fanboy. Be nice to each other. The Just Another Fanboy podcast is a Stephen or else production. Questions and comments can be directed to justanotherfanboy at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram by searching for at Stephen or else, and then come join in on all the fun at the Just Another Fanboy message boards at forum.justanotherfanboy.com. You can support the show for as little as a dollar a month over at the Patreon by going to patreon.com slash Stephen R. Or, and in return, I am going to do my very very best to get you and your fellow patrons episodes just like this one before anybody else. I also encourage you to rate the show wherever available and share this episode with a friend. All links will be in the show notes. Bye-bye, Daddy. Bye-bye, Daddy. Good job. I'm going to take a drink of coffee here, folks. You got coffee? Go ahead and take a drink. You're going to need it. It's going to be a long one. Blah, blah, blah. Blue, blue. Here we go. Going to do some stuff. Blah, blah, blah. A human barbarian. Barbarian. Why are you looking at me with eyes so blue? Even in the remote far northern region of Icewind Dale, the renegade dark elf ranger Drizzt Duor... Even in the remote far northern region of Icewind Dale, the renegade dark elf ranger Drist Duerden, Doerden, Drist Doerden. Uh, uh.